Hello. And welcome <laughs> to the Plans and Pipettes podcast. Hi, I'm Yoram. I'm Tegan. And my mum just told me that I interrupt your arm too much. So there's going to be a lot of awkward pauses on this podcast today. <laughs> Which I admit I do. I'm aware of this problem. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah. And um, uh, I will not be used to it that you will respect my speaking time. So I will also like constantly just like brace for impact of your interruption. Uh, so it will, it might will be awkward. Uh, sometimes like so we actually we always have a video on while we're talking so we can kind of take cues for when to stop talking and sometimes your arm is just not looking at me which is in itself rude because like look at my beauty please look at my face so then i <laughs> i mean i I'm, I'm looking at our script i'm looking at all of the individual words that are written <laughs> down as we as we're meant to say them script makes us sound much more organized than we are i would say <laughs> Um, also, speaking of beautiful faces, <laughs> Yoram, what did you do this week? I made a mistake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my, my, my wife sent me um, a link to like a science news story. It was like, did you know that like beards are breaking the effectiveness of FFP2 masks because they you break the seal around your face and so you're breathing out the sides of the mask instead of through the mask? And like I, I'm trying not to interrupt here, but like, did you see how he immediately blamed his wife? When I mean, listen out, she's the victim here. <laughs> no, no, I mean, victim. I mean, that's just the facts that she sent me this. And then I was like, okay, then I'm, I'm, I'm gonna shave then. Um, and then in the video or in the the story, they say like, yeah, the only safe type of beard is a mustache and i was like okay i'll just have a mustache then um and so she, she was like um just like some frowny face emojis and um then one point i was just like yeah okay i'm gonna do it now um because also like i mean these days it's really hard to feel anything so <laughs> the way to to feel alive to still feel like something happens to in in my in my life I was just like shaving everything off um, and I had a mustache for all of like 20 minutes or so enough for a few photos. Um, but then it was not met with uh, welcoming eyes. I would say like, um, yeah, <laughs> I feel like in a pandemic, you don't really want wife. to be kicked out of the house. Like it's very important that you stay in the house and to achieve that, I had to become like fully FFP2 compliant by removing all of the hair from my like lower part of the face. Like I didn't shave my eyebrows off, but the rest, I mean, it's regrowing now, but um, yeah. And, and now you I look very young. Like, <laughs> yes. Re like Too young. teenager, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> you've gone from being very much a dad, like you've got the dad jokes and like the dad beard and like kind of that hipster dad look to being a teenager, I would say. But, yeah, um, no, I'm I'm back in my awkward teenage phase. Um, but at least I'm talking to a girl, so it's not that bad. So, <laughs> and also, not, 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 like this didn't happen like for the first half of my life. <laughs> um, in fairness, like I only got about two or three months in to lockdown before I started like changing my hair. So I was trying to perm my hair, and I did that twice. It didn't work, but I like put chemicals and permed my hair twice and i've like you know i think as a as a woman that's kind of this this easy thing of dyeing your hair cutting your hair or like rearranging your eyebrows like yeah this kind of stuff so yeah we we, we men we have 
expect a thing on our face. That's pretty much the full thing that we can do. And um, yeah, I myself, like on other occasions, was very ranty about different types of beard. I'm actually like I try to portray myself as a kind of tolerant man, but when it comes to beards, I'm like the worst kind of intolerant. Um, so it was also an exercise for myself to see. Like I, I went I'll- through a couple of different beards um, to like get accustomed to them, like while shaving. And I realized I like I feel I feel corrected in my my worldview, which is like I hate most beards that are not full beards. <laughs> I mean, it's also nice to know that for your face, what you had been wearing for the last like what ten years, your your full beard, it's not a local optimum; it's an absolute optimum. Like <laughs> that's where your face is peaking. Don't let's try and you know you want to like move up and down, like go down the valleys to see if there's like a higher peak somewhere else because you might be in a local maximum, not an absolute maximum. As it turns out, no. Um, we know although like i will pay you 20 pounds or 20 of your euros if you if you deliberately keep like a small like let's let's go for a reverse soul patch so as the rest of the beard grows back in you prevent like a small soul patch from growing and you tell your wife that those hairs just don't want to grow back and you're not sure what you're doing wrong (laughs) like you ruined them and now you're going to have a reverse salt patch for the rest of your life. I mean, a reverse salt patch, I think, is fine. My my dreaded thing is the goatee and the reverse goatee. I think both of them... What's a reverse goatee? Just, like, keep everything that would be a goatee clean, but you still have, like, all of the neck beard and the sides and everything. But just, like, just around the mouth, it's clean. Um, Isn't that what Iron Man has? Doesn't Iron Man have a goatee? No. Yeah, he has a goatee, but he doesn't have a reverse goatee. Okay. Well, I don't think I, I need to like go and study my classification of male facial hair. But also like I don't want to lose like the, the last bit of sympathy that some people might have with me by like going off how much I hate goatees because there might be goatee wearing people in the audience. And um, I don't no, mean I don't you personally, th- I just mean the beard in general. <laughs> and I think also we're we're arguing for Yoram personally. Like <laughs> it's not necessarily about all goatees. It's specifically about... Yoram I can't confirm or deny to... that. Like, <laughs> okay, but like for the for the sake of political correctness, <laughs> we're not saying that mustaches look bad on everyone's face. We're just saying definitely yes on Yoram's face. No, mus- mustaches. There are some people that look good with them, but that's yeah. probably people that look good with anything. Like Henry Cavill in like one of the Superman movies, he has like a mustache. Or is it no, not in a Superman movie, but in the like a Mission Impossible movie, he has a mustache, and he looks very good with it. But I think Henry Cavill could wear whatever he wanted and he would look amazing in it. Oh, this is a man who is like 90% like chest muscle. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the <laughs> the definition of him on Wikipedia. It's like Henry Cavill is 90% chest muscle. Oh, he was in Enola Holmes. I have seen him in something. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, um, but so yeah. <laughs> great i mean Uh, in the end like uh, nobody really sees it ever although like i have to say like on 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 video calls like i'm not the one who goes to extreme measures like um, a person who had like a very full head of hair suddenly has like a shaved head so i think um some people like it's it's the season or it's the state of the lockdown that we're in now where you start going to like extreme measures and you just take the buzz cutter and whatever can go will go and i'm also like every day getting closer to the line where i'm just going to shave my full head because i'm sick 
of not being able to go to the hairdresser and my hair annoys me and i'm just like i mean how bad can it be and how long will it be bad like not very long and it can't be very bad so at one point I think these are questions for your wife not for you honestly and yeah, again i mean I, I, I also learned a lesson here so. <laughs> i support your bodily autonomy but also i support <laughs> the fact that she has to look at you no um yeah. i also realized like i um so my my house doesn't have white walls it has this like slightly off whitey kind of cream color and i am now so pale that if i try and use the the zoom effects where like there's a background behind me like it gets confused because my my skin is slightly off white in the same range of paleness as the wall so like as i move i just kind of like fade i actually look like a mystique like to be very self-flattering i mean i definitely don't i look ridiculous but like parts of me just like naked in your zoom calls (laughs) like on the kills here almost always as you said you've got to keep things spicy at this stage of lockdown no but like i mean if i stop moving my cheeks just slowly like blend into the walls and thus like become you know (laughs) flushed with parrots or whatever i have in the background and then i move a bit and i come out again and it's it's, it feels like i have great respect for cuttlefish and squid so that does kind of feel a little bit (laughs) a little bit special you know yeah it sounds like it like yeah yeah, my, my computer is not like strong enough to do any of the effects whenever I do that. It sounds like a jet engine taking off and it gets very warm in the room. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's that. And my other thing that I wanted to talk on the top of the show is that I did like some actual outreach, some real thing. <laughs> like, Wait, it was when? very interesting. I um, talked to a, a class of 10th graders about CRISPR. They contacted me. It's like a Montessori school, so where the children take a lot of, like the, the students take a lot of the the initiative. Um, and they contacted me as an expert because they had like a, um, a class in biology on the topic of genome editing. And, and so they invited me to, to talk to them. And it was really fun. It was really fun because first thing, like they also were handling the Zoom call. Like the teacher would give like a very short introduction. And then the rest of the moderation was done by one of the students. And I have to say, this student, a 10th grader, did better than a lot of the people I had like professional Zoom calls with when they were moderating it. Like perfect, like like interrupting me at the right points to to ask questions that they had prepared beforehand, giving the voice to different people who would like raise their hands and be like, I have a question and so on. And it was it was a delight to have this moderator and he's not even like of, of legal drinking age um, and doing a better job than so many people I've talked over video call with in the in the last um, couple of months. So that was really enjoyable. Like, is it like most of the familiarity with the technology that it's kind of just like I think the the teacher later told me that they they do actual trainings for that like they they oh, teach cool. them how to like run a podium for example um and now these days they do it online but before that they would do that like in person with like a panel of of experts and they would teach them um how to organize that and and yeah be good public talkers um so I mean it comes from the school I guess but probably mm. also familiarity with with the thing yeah, the other thing that happened there that was fun is I, I asked them a couple of questions because it was also about the ethics of doing genome editing, not only in plants, but specifically also in humans. And I went through a couple of questions like, would you allow it to, to when two parents who want to have a child and they b- both carry um, a genetic mutation that would mean that the child is at risk of dying uh, at a young age, would you allow them to use genome editing to fix that if that would be possible? And so, and then down to like, if it's just about allergies, would you allow them to fix allergies? And it was interesting and in the plant world, I asked them, like, would you 
like allow genome editing in crops and 80% of them said like yeah um, genome editing in crops sounds like a good idea and then I was like but would you buy a tomato if it's advertised as being genome edited to be like more fresh or whatever and then more than half said no I wouldn't buy it, this tomato and I was like ah, that's weird like is, is it like me with the bugs in, in the food like do it but don't mm, tell don't me about know. it but then later in the chat they said like i hate tomatoes i don't buy tomatoes so as it turned out <laughs> a lot of these 10th graders they just hate tomatoes and they wouldn't buy them anyway so um in this case like i learned that i would have to like rephrase that question you wrote you iterations. asked the wrong question <laughs> yes. yeah wow that was also did, <laughs> who, who hates tomatoes did did they i mean this is these are tricky ethical questions for anybody right this sliding scale yeah. of when it is okay to fix a problem and when it becomes like this creepy gallica bullshit of like perfecting everybody to have like perfect i'm using little like um speech quotation marks like blue eyes and blonde hair or whatever <laughs> did they yeah. sorry did they give the like good ex answers could they discuss it or was it kind of like a debate thing we didn't discuss it in in great detail but they i think um from from what i heard was that they were it was about like the the life and death situation and when it becomes sort of um aesthetics or like less like life-threatening things like mild allergies or stuff um then they that's where they drew the line but we didn't really have the chance to discuss it in like in detail what what their reasonings behind that was when we went through like different questions um but they will discuss it like later on like they actually their homework was over the the, the break that's happening now at school um to discuss it with like their families and and friends um discuss the topic of genome editing um and then sort of write a short essay about what they found out and so on and so maybe i will hear from that and that would be very interesting i would like to know what their approach was but yeah the whole thing like, I, I didn't give also like any definitive answers on it like i said like for, no, for I plants mean, I, I have an opinion but mm. it's just my opinion um and it's something that can be discussed and please do and um please just give like your after seeing all of the things that i said like where would you place yourself on it so that was really interesting it was a very pleasant experience to to talk to these 10th graders yeah that sounds really cool yeah I recently watched the movie Tenet. Did mm -hmm. you see Tenet yet? No, I haven't. Because is it like is it on some streaming or something? I thought it was in a mo in a movie theaters, but I like. Oh, I guess it's on something that's not Netflix and is not Amazon, but it's like a third thing. I don't know. Um, my housemate bought it from something online, and I watched it, and I. <laughs> I generally have strong negative reactions to any films involving time travel because they are by definition stupid and <laughs> I shouldn't have to respect them. Um, and this, like, this film was really... It was very interesting the whole way through. There's a lot going on and there's some really cool visual scenes because there's people moving backwards and forwards in time. So there's basically a car chase kind of scene um, where some cars are moving forward and some cars are moving backwards. And this is like... Very awesome to watch. But at the very start of the, the movie, like a lot of it was just confusing to me. I'm always confused in these films. At the very start of the movie, the, the female scientist, um, and I'm saying female scientist because she was one of like three female characters. And we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's something we need to talk about there. Um, she, she's talking to him about how this like 
backwards time stuff works. And at one point she says, you don't need to understand it. You just have to feel it. And that that was the point where I was like, okay, (laughs) it's one of those films. Um, it's really fun to watch. I do have a major gripe about the the fact that so Christopher Nolan was apparently thinking about this for twenty years. He was writing it for five years, and the basically these female characters. So there's really like one main character who's a female, um, three main male characters, and a few minor characters. Her entire motivation is I have a child and I want it to live, which I find unbearable because it's literally her entire motivation and there's a point where she has to like not kill her husband like all she has to do to save the entire world is wait three minutes before she kills her husband and her decision is like you know what actually i'm just gonna kill him anyway (laughs) like she just anyway um different round for different day (laughs) What I do want to say is I found out about the the Sator Square. So there's this um, thing that has popped up. Um, like it's a square with five by five letters. And it's popped up all in, in sort of ancient stonework, um, been around for a long time. And it has these five lines with the words. The first word is Sator. The next is Arepo. The next one is Tenet then opera, then rotas. So the movie Tenet is very heavily like kind of inspired by this square because the square is like a palindrome in multiple directions. um, And it has like all these different ways of reading it. And I just, I spent like hours reading about this. This is the most, like go and do it. I mean, like honestly, the movie is fine, but I wish the movie had been about this, the Wikipedia article of the Sator Square because it's, (laughs) it's so, it's so cool. Like, so Sator, like the first word means like the sower or the planter or the founder. The second word is probably a proper name, so Arepo. Then tenet means to like to keep or to possess or to like master. Then opera could mean to like care or work or help. And then rotas is like to cause to rotate or to like or or a wheel. So you can have like depending on how you read this, you can sort of have these different like it could say the farmer Arepo works a wheel. Like, that's quite a simple, literal, grammatically correct sentence. But it could also have this, like, kind of deeper meaning where it's um, the farmer Arepo holds the wheels with difficulty, which is kind of more, like, mystical about the turning of time. And then it has, like, all these, like, Christian associations and, like, ancient God associations. And it's just, it's my favorite thing. It's really really cool and you should definitely go and um spend five hours reading this. i look part of me like there's a little niggly part of me that feels that by putting a repo which is like a name and possibly even not a common name at the time but like a made-up name is a bit cheating because in order to have this five by five different ways of reading they had to have the word a repo and it seems like that was like the made-up word to fit in the thing yeah, but it's so cool. Like it's so so cool, and yeah, I love it. Yeah, I I just remembered it from my Latin classes, but um, never in great detail. So it's actually it it sounds really exciting. I'm just also like I opened up the Wikipedia page for it, um, and you can. Sorry. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I just have to say that there's like one that's like Christian associations, and there's like another thing where it's just like says Pater Nostra, and then it's like says also Pater Nostra with the N having in common, and it's just like A O O A in sort of 
distantly related thing, which is like an anagram of all the letters in there. But it sounds like such a weaker version of <laughs> of this square. Like the square is so clever, and then sort of the the way of being like, oh yeah, this is like actually they they meant our god, and then they come up with this. Um, well, the A and O is Alpha and Omega. Though. I know, that but still, it's like, like it's not even sort of attached to the rest of the letters, and it's then yeah. I don't know. It's just like you have the thing on top and it has like all of like you can read every word from like at least three different uh, starting positions or even more. Um, and then you have like one that's like very bland and I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, the best one is when you read it about the serpent gods. There's one version where you read it, Sato Rotas Opera Arepo Tenet. So it's, it comes as, O creator, you who calls everything to rotate, with effort I crawl towards you. And then, like, tenant basically means to maintain. So it's like to maintain rotation. So this is kind of like then you chant tenant, 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 maintain the rotation. Like, I love it. I really. And then, I mean, there's there's like linguistic things in there as well. Like, I found out that there's um uh what's it called uh, a not even a tense um what's dative, genitive, and accusative? What are they called? Cases cases there's a case that is called like i want to say ablative but the person on mm-hmm. the video said ablative but i'm yeah, i'm pretty sure he's wrong no it's ablative like it's <laughs> that sounds that sounds upsetting because we do have the word to ablate like ablation and ablate in english but yeah, okay, the but- ablative where you're like the point of it is to separate yourself from like it's a separation like to come away from to come like Oh my goodness! What <laughs> there goes like four hours of my Saturday day just reading all of this crazy wormhole of knowledge. Like, yeah. guys, yeah. the internet can be fun f- too. Like, if you don't spend all your time just on Twitter, there's actually like non hellhole stuff out there. there. There was a time when I would like to to read like Wikipedia random articles, but then uh, at one point Wikipedia became so big that. By now, the chance of just hitting like a random location description is very high. Mm. So you just click on random and you come to like Bad Salzuflen is a location somewhere in Bavaria. And then you click it again and then it's like, yeah, this is a place in Georgia. And it's okay, cool, but not as fun as it used to be when it was like less ex- extensive in the way in the things that it was describing. I remember like an article of the day that was on the the homepage where you could like click on that and that was usually yeah. somewhat interesting, right? I think they still have it. Okay. Um, yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry. That was very big. <laughs> that was not at all related to plants, but I mean, maybe Yoram has to cut that off. <laughs> favorite plant and it's you this week Tegan yes it is me this week and I want to give a huge thank you to the person who sent me this plant and effectively did my homework um, for me they've not only made my life very easy but also made Yoram jealous so hooray Um, the plant that I'm speaking about today is called Roim Nobile or Noble Nobile um, the Sikkim Rhubarb or Noble Rhubarb and I've sent it to Yoram now so that he can have a quick look at the Wikipedia just to get an example, like to see what it looks like. Because I think the most fascinating thing about it to start with is how it looks. Can you give a description of some kind, Yoram? 
to me it looks like if you would build a tower out of cauliflower and then you would have like all of the cauliflower leaves at the bottom but you have like the the white cores of the cauliflower and you just like stick them on like snowballs until you get like a tower shape um with like a pink tip uh, and the, on the picture it grows in like a very dry mountainous region like there isn't mm-hmm. hardly anything else growing there it's like the lone plant in the whole valley um yeah. so looks pretty dramatic Yeah, so my first thought was that the reason it's called noble rhubarb is because it's trying to counteract the fact that when you see it, you think stupid cabbage because it really has this... To me, it looks like immediately like upside-down bok choy. So the top bits, that kind of lump of cauliflower that Yaron beautifully described, that's obviously kind of white or very pale. And then it has a kind of... um, like lower section that's it's it's very rocket shaped right it has this kind of perky bit with the cabbages and then a bottom bit with like more leafy green structures and it looks like it's upside down it looks a bit ridiculous and we'll get into why that is a little bit later but as Yaram also said it is growing in kind of a weird environment where there's nothing else around it grows at very high altitudes um in Tibet Myanmar Bhutan like Pakistan India so like basically in these Himalayan regions so really high up where it's really really cold and also really really bright which is an important thing about it um so Yeah, I think, as you can tell from the name, it's kind of related to rhubarbs, um, but it doesn't really look like a rhubarb, as we've already described. Um, And it doesn't look like any other plant that you would see growing on the mountains. Usually things that grow up really high um, or in extreme environments tend to be quite small and kind of close to the ground. They try to snuggle into rocks as a way to get away from the exposure of the cold and also of the very bright light that is up there. So as you get higher in altitude, you also have problems of extreme light intensity and also extreme UV radiation. Um, So that is why this plant has the very special shape and features that it has. So what you're seeing is at the bottom, there are kind of green leaves and these are sort of normal leafy structures, which are, they're green, they're doing photosynthesis. And then above it, these things that look like sort of pale leaves are actually bracts and bracts are a very specialized type of leaf um, that is sort of developed uh, to protect flowers or developing um, fruits. So the most famous bracts I think would be the bougainvillea. So you know this um, kind of Mediterranean plant that has these super bright purpley pink colored what look like flowers, um, those are actually bracts. So they're specialized leaves that have turned pink and then the flower is this really small white thing inside. And the purpose of these bracts in our noble rhubarb are to protect the the flowers um, and then also to protect the fruit as it develops. And they're protecting it in two ways. So the first way is they're keeping it warm. So some studies suggest that it might be up to 10 degrees warmer underneath this like snuggly layer of um, bracts. So this kind of, I mean, they really flow over each other. So you can see it's quite encasing and it would really prevent heat from getting out. So keeping warmth allows um, the flowers to develop, allows pollination to happen, um, allows the fruit to then develop. So this is like super important in this cold mountainous region. And the second thing they're doing is protecting the plant from 
UV rays. So again, as we said, in mountainous region, lots of UV coming through, and this can be very damaging, cause cell death, cause like cellular mutations, and again, like completely prevent the plant from having successful reproduction. So studies have shown that these leaves, although they're like super thin, um, almost papery, and they let a lot of visible light through, they actually block a ton of UV light. So they are much more effective at blocking UV light than even the normal thick green juicy leaves. Um, these super thin leaves can prevent UV from getting in. Mm. And they do this because um, they express a lot of flavanols, um, which are specialized kind of, um, sorry, flavonoids, I should say. It's specialized um, chemicals, which are kind of made of a couple of ring structures. And they are like, often used by plants either to make color like pigments or like as protective um, in this case, so like UV protection. So there've been studies which show that this guy kind of makes uh, five major types of flavonoids, which are just in there and blocking all that UV light from getting in. And there've been a number of studies over the year which have um, played around with the plant by like removing the leaves and seeing how it affects um the development of the flowers themselves and then of, of the the fruit eventually. And it's it's a really big difference. So both from the UV point of view and from the cold point of view, the um, effective reproduction goes like from like 90% of fruit setting down like to, you know, less than 7%, I think was one of the statistics. So it's really creating its own like special greenhouse where it keeps heat in and like lets the right kind of lights in but blocks um UV light. And the final, I think, really cool thing about this species is the way it is, in fact, pollinated. So um, it's capable, it's, it's self-compatible. So it is capable of, like, having the pollen from one, like, plant flower go to the... Um, the ovule of the same flower or plant, but um, it actually uses a, a bug to pollinate it. And this bug is kind of weird. It's a fungus fly, a fungus gnat. gnat. Um, but this is quite weird because the gnat that is involved in pollinating the plant is the same gnat that is involved, the, the same gnat that also eats the, the fruits of mm. the plant. So there's kind of this like closed circle system, which is super weird. And again, people have looked into this and they found that the amount, the benefit from getting pollination from this this gnat is much higher than the cost to the plant. So the gnat increases reproduction by such a large amount that it doesn't decrease the ultimate um, output of, of, you know, mature seeds. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the gnat also gets to live in these nice warm bracts. So the gnat gets a secondary benefit of sort of staying warm and snug. So there's really this kind of like enclosed ecosystem it's ecosystem where both of these species are strongly reliant on the other species in order to survive. So it's a really nice example, not just from this kind of cool chemical UV sunscreen blocking point of view, not just from the it looks like a weirdo point of view, but also from an ecosystem point of view where you can kind of see this like real circular symbiosis. So yeah, yeah I think it's truly cool. 
yeah it, it it really is cool like if I, if you imagine like you are in these mountain regions where there's hardly anything um that can survive there or like much less than at lower altitudes and then you have like this little ecosystem going on this little these two species that help each other out to survive in this area that's 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 pretty cool yeah and we can put some links up there's like they've done all these experiments where they they show that if the bracts weren't there and the, the, the pollen was exposed to the same level of UV that is in that environment, that pollen would be completely like dead, done. Um, they've also shown that the bracts themselves are adaptive. So as you go up the mountain and you get more and more UV radiation, the plants are making more of these um, protective flavonoids in their bracts. So bracts at higher mountain although they're still letting all the light through they're producing more of these like molecular sunscreens um and thus have like adapted to the pollen is still seeing as much uv as it would at much lower altitudes so it's just an insanely cool plant honestly yeah yeah really cool although i imagine like maybe hard to grow in a, in a greenhouse i would like to see like these these towers of plant in a greenhouse adapted to highlight intensities And then, like, your power bill goes through the roof because you have to blast them with light so they actually feel fine um, in a close environment. So, you say that, but I did find that I can buy seeds in the UK. Oh. And it said that it can grow as long as it's um, in not too muddy, so it has to be um, well-draining soil. Mm -hmm. I contemplated buying some, but I'm not sure. It does take a few years to get anything exciting, and I'm not really sure, like... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Then, then maybe it's easy. Completely <laughs> wrong. Um, as I sometimes am. Um, so yeah, cool. Do you want to say the name again of it? Yes, it's Roim Nobile Nobile Noble. Um, <laughs> I'm saying all of those wrong. We need a Latin expert on this. Um, I, I would probably call like um, pronounce it Reum Reum Nobile. Reum. Reum nobile would be like the German way of pronouncing Latin, which is probably also not the right way to pronounce Latin. Um, it was um, discovered by Hooker, who is... Oh, no, he's British. Mm, before we go forward, I really need to say that you should go and look at the images on, I think, Twitter. The best is from Alpine Garden Society on both Facebook and Twitter, because there you can actually see an image of somebody like peeling back the bracts. Um to show the flower underneath. So for me, it was actually quite hard to envision how the flower, like where it was and how it worked. But there's some really beautiful um, pictures that show that to sort of see how these are really just like little, like delicate protective shields. I think it's, it's super nice. We'll put the link in the bio. It's the noble rhubarb. We'll put a link so that you can go and read the Latin for yourself and tell us how we did it wrong. Diversity in the class. Science. Um, yeah, this week it's me, uh, and I also had somebody else to do my homework, as in picking a person. Um, so I want to thank Jana for it, um, who messaged us on Facebook with the suggestion, and I was very, very happy once I read more about it. Um, so today I want to talk about Jeanne Barret, um, who lived from 1740 to 187, um, 
And she was, uh, when she was growing up, she grew up in like very poor circumstances. She grew up in Burgundy in France and was an area that at the time had a very strong class division between sort of the peasant class and the noble class or the sort of higher bourgeoisie class. Um, so she, she grew up in pretty like poor and bad circumstances. Um, but through, coincidence or through her work she got in touch with um, Philibert Commerçant who was um, a French naturalist and botanist and she worked um, at his sort of household and became his mistress so he was married um, to to another woman but um, she died during childbirth and um, that sort of strengthened the relationship between Philibert Commerçant and uh, Jeanne Barré. And there's some, it's not really clear, but there's some rumors or some sort of evidence hinting at that um, Commerçant was then the one who taught her how to how to write and how to read, which becomes la important later on. Um, so the, the two of them, they also had a child, but unfortunately it also died at a very young age. Um, so there was a lot of sort of a tragic backstory, I would call it, for like uh, Jeanne Barré. It wasn't like the most fun life. But then um, Commerçant was invited to join a great French expedition um, that was it's very famous. It's of Louis Antoine de Bou uh, Bougainville, um, who commanded the ship La Boudeuse, um, and that's like a very yeah. Is he the guy who came up with Bougainvillea? maybe i didn't really read into what he did but it's like a very famous french ex expedition to circumvent the globe at this time so they they headed out west from from france towards like the fairly still fairly freshly discovered americas i mean this was in the 18th century so there was already like quite a lot of trade going on but still a lot of things to be discovered um but it was like a big French expedition and Commerçant was invited and he could bring one servant with him, but they couldn't bring any uh, women on board of a ship. There was a, like a very tight rule back then. It was illegal to have women on a ship. It, can, uh, it must be only men. And um, so... In the I mean, it was probably, that was probably not just illegal. It was probably like, if you have a woman on the ship, the ship will sink. I mean, there was like, like superstition like and legal yeah, exactly. problems, like both of them together. Um but they, um, so the official documentation sort of says that it was the idea of uh, Jeanne Barré sort of on her own, maybe together with, um, um, to get together with uh, uh, Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. Um, but they, the, she pretended to be a man and sort of at the very last minute hired as the servant to Commerçant on the ship. But as they both had a close relationship before, it's fairly obvious that he knew about it. That it wasn't just like her coming up, but with sort of in in the diaries and in the documentation that was written at the time that that historians are referencing now, it was sort of avoided to talk about this area, and it was pretended as if Commerçant was also surprised by by this happening. But she hired then as a male servant. She pretended to be male. She bound her breast and wear wore men's clothes, and um, she she boarded the ship as his servant and because he had a lot of like um, being a naturalist um, sort of a, the natural scientist uh, of the ship he was sort of the science officer going on this expedition he was he was the one doing the science so he brought a lot of equipment with him and because he needed so much whatever um, they actually got the captain's um, quarters to them 
um, because they had to store all of the equipment and that was sort of the largest quarters that were available where they could have everything there which was also then an advantage for for her having her own private bathroom and her own private quarters so um to to avoid detection and i'm sorry to be immature but he basically said my equipment's so big i'm gonna need the master's quarters like that was pretty much but it's like in the in the thing that i read it was like the, the captain offered them the quarters it's mm. debatable how much they insisted to get them like everybody else must have known, right? Like it's this thing where like she's walking around pretending to a man to be a man, and everybody else is like, "Yeah, we we know what's happening." I mean, there's here. there's like different sources on it. Um, we're coming back to that later, but there's like different sources that say some some of them say that it was like pretty early on it was sort of suspected or known that she's not a man. Um, others say that she was sort of investigated and she pretended to be a eunuch, 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 eunuch. And others say that it was like undiscovered for a long time until they actually um, got to Tahiti, where um, the locals very quickly spotted her and uh, investigated her. <laughs> and through that, it sort of became known on the entire ship that she's a woman. So it's debated. Debated. I would also think it's fairly obvious early on. This is like a lot of the discussion now about gender, about how a lot of our obsession with gendering everything, you know, only men can wear pants, only women can wear pink, is really linked to colonialism. And isn't that just, like, so funny? Like, if all of the... Is it British or French people, I guess? All the French people were so obsessed with the idea that only men had short hair and only women... Like, only men wore pants, that to them, as soon as you, like, slightly tie up your boobs and put a pants on, you... Like... It was so dichotomous to them, and then everybody else was like, "No, seriously, like, look at her hips. Like, that's yeah. that's a woman." There. <laughs> like, yeah. It could very well be, but um, yeah, it's a bad. I would think like you live on a on a ship for in in such a close in such close quarters, and for such a long time that I would be surprised if nobody had any idea what was going on. Um, but still, like they they travel together, and I mean, by now we still haven't touched really why she's important to plant science, and that's now that she then also worked as an assistant. So she was um, working a lot as a nurse to uh, Commerçant because he had some health uh, issues. But then when it got to actual field work, she was like really hands on. She was first of all carrying the equipment to the point that people were really impressed of like how much heavy equipment she was like carrying for him up mountains and through jungles and so on. So -hmm. apparently more impressive than like male counterparts. Um, uh, But she was also collecting samples. She was organizing notes, taking um, like um, writing down notes. So she was really uh, a research assistant um, to the point that even some of the samples that she collected uh, made it into collections that are now on display in some uh, museums. Um, where like officially um, these samples were collected by Commerçant, but historians believe that like uh, there is a sample in the New York Botanical Garden that's um, believed to be collected by her and that uh, when she was traveling with him and not actually by him, but because he was mm-hmm. sort of the, the scientist, his name was put on the documents. So she was really taking part in the science and, and um, doing a lot of the collection Um and unfortunately, uh, Commerçant, he like he named a lot of plants like f- after friends and family, and a lot of them after himself. Uh, but he didn't really name one after her. Like there was one that he he named after her, but 
uh, they didn't know at the time that this genus, he actually called like the entire genus after her. It was called Baretia bonafida, uh, bonafidia. Um, but this plant was already um, known, uh, like was named in Paris during the time while they were away. So the name didn't persist. Um, it didn't stick. And so actually from this expedition, there was no plant named after her. Um so they, they, they went on, they, they traveled to like South America and then from then on into uh, like further west uh, and into like Tahiti and um, uh, Mauritius. So in the Indian Ocean um, where they were sort of complimented off the ship because it was known by then that she's a woman. And as it was illegal, um, the, the head of the expedition was um, sort of gently pushing, like convincing them that it's it's Mauritius is a nice area to stay. And so they left the ship and stayed on this island uh, mm -hmm. for a bit. Um, this is also where then Philibert Commerçant died and she was then, Jeanne Barré was on her own. Um, and then she turned to to run a tavern and quite successfully so. And it's also believed that she ran like other businesses. She accumulated quite a fortune on this island um, on her own. And then she met um, a French officer and married him. And together they then returned to France um, with like her amassed fortune. And then in France, they also, she was put in the will of Commerçant. So she also had some wealth from that. And that made her the first woman to officially like, oh, that's, recognized the first recognized woman to circumvent the globe um and um, that actually got her quite a lot of uh, sort of um respect she even got a, an, an official pension from the marine for her work on the expedition and also for acknowledging her feat of circumventing the entire globe um as a woman uh and yeah so that's like in itself it's like a very cool adventure story i find of her um and yeah. uh today there's actually now a plant that's named after her there's solanum baritie that's uh carries her name but this plant was only discovered in 1992 and named after her like in her honor in 2012 so um now we actually do have a plant um that's named in her honor but unfortunately it's not one of the plants that she helped discover on the on the expedition um yeah and there's also like a a, a nice google doodle that's uh about her uh, of uh, to honor to commemorate her 280th anniversary uh, anniversary of the death of her death no of of, uh, of her birth i think um and um for a very long time we didn't know a lot about her but uh historians uncovered like more documents so in the last 10 years there was more information about her and there's a book that's actually the one that was recommended to us by Jana. So thank you again for that. That's <laughs> the discovery of uh, Jeanne Barret um, that sort of popularized the idea of a female explorer taking on on these all on uh, taking on these adventures, traveling the entire globe, and yeah, actually doing quite a lot of cool things. I mean, if you imagine, like she she grew up very poor in Burgundy. And then she successfully ran a tavern on Mauritius, did business, was a scientist, um, traveled the entire world. I, I think it's pretty cool. Mm. So yeah, thank you. Um, I just I just had a quick look up, and she they do actually think that maybe she discovered Bougainvillea in the end. Like mm. that was, I mean, again attributed to her her male love, but yeah, cool. Yeah. So really, really cool. And I mean, it, it it's a bit of a stretch to extrapolate it from this, but um, uh, 
if you imagine, like we always talk about like how diversity improves science and she sort of forced diversity onto this ship like a tiny little bit by being a woman on the ship and apparently had some impact on it. And I think it's, it's um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like one little piece of evidence. So uh, scientifically speaking, not really a good point I'm making, but I just think it's so cool that like she snuck on this ship and she did all of these cool things. Um, she survived like the her her scientist husband who was hired there, um, and yeah, I, I'm just really I find it really cool that she did this. I was thinking more. There's like a a famous Ginger Rogers quote. So she was this, this very popular dancer. She danced with Fred Astaire, um, and she said that. Everything that Fred Astaire, like Fred Astaire, obviously was more famous of the two, and she said everything that Fred Astaire did, I did backwards um, and in high heels, and I feel like this is like the same thing. Like everything, whatever her husband did, she did, and with her breast bound, which seems really, really painful. So. And carrying all the equipment, like she was like doing all of the heavy lifting, literally the heavy lifting, plus the <laughs> science work, um, and like his name was on everything. And this actually segues really nicely into something quickly I want to talk about um, that somebody sent me today, which is from thetoast.net, which is things women in literature have died from. And there's like a list of like ridiculous things um, because like linked to kind of heavy listening. So one of them is ship infidelity, um, pony exhaustion, haven't seen the scene a long time, um, Somebody said no very loudly while they were in the room, uh, going out into night in Italy. Like, there's all these like lists, and there's also one for men. And I would encourage you to look into that. It's really, really great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She she would not faint from somebody saying no very loudly. Like no, 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 no. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh, Jean Barré. Um, and yeah, very cool story. Like the Wikipedia article is also, uh, actually very informative, but I'm, I, I'm sort of longing to read the actual book about her life. Like, I think I might buy that and read the whole thing because I, I found that very cool. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 so last time we talked about biases, you had one like extra bias that fit nicely into your story. And so I have sort of one left and I'm just pushing it in here now, even though I know that you did your homework, but I will do mine now. Um, so my, my, <laughs> uh, my, my, the, the bias I want to talk about today is called the escalation of commitment. And um, this is an idea that I think we touched on a couple of times already when talking about bias, but this is sort of a different angle to it. And um, this is the idea that once we committed to an idea, we stick to it no matter what. Um, even if the situations change and we would re be required to make a new decision and change course, we still stick to it because we committed to it. And this is sort of related to the sunk cost fallacy where like you spend a lot of energy or uh, resources on making, doing something. And so you think mm -hmm. you have to stick with it, even if it sort of at the point where you are and you have like two options, there's like one that's clearly cheaper than the other one, but the cheaper one would mean re dropping the, th the work that you have done already. And you think like, oh no, so I am not doing it because I have already done all of this work. And this is related there. But it's this is much more related to ego instead of resources, where the sunk cost fallacy is really about like the time and money that you spend on it. This is more about like you you committed to doing something and because you made this like 
decision to commit, it means you will stick to it. And um, there's a famous example, um, for example, in with the Concorde project, where the people committed to running this this project, so the the supersonic jet connection between France and the United States, but it was pretty much from the get-go running at a loss. Um, it was never really economical to do this, but because they committed to it um, and they wanted it as such a prestige project, they stuck with it and um, they 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 ran with it and they kept it going for a very long time, even though it never really made them any money because they committed to doing so. Um, but we can also see that, for example, in like bidding wars, when you have like auctions and stuff, and when people go way over the actual value because they committed to the idea of buying something, um, they just keep pushing money into it because um, they, yeah, they committed to the idea, but they completely detach themselves from the idea of how much an item is actually worth. Um, uh, there's also a local example that we had here in Berlin. We had an airport, or we have now an airport. It was like 10 years behind schedule. It was 6.5 billion euros over budget. And it's one of the prime examples also on like the Wikipedia page on this escala escalation of commitment because it was too expensive to fail. They committed so hard to doing it the way that they decided to do it that they could not stop it. They could not take any alternative approach, although there were like many, many different approaches suggested at the time. They were like, no, we have to do this. We committed to it. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that now in the pandemic response, um, some decision makers, they stick to decisions they made at one point um, and they will not change their opinion, even though new, uh, new scientific evidence is coming in, uh, new advice is coming in and sort of the, the rational decision would be to look at what we have at the moment and then make a decision based on that. But they sort of made a decision beforehand and keep going. Like for for uh, for us in Germany, like one of the major, major things is like we will keep offices and schools open for as long as we can. And it was a decision that was made very early on. And schools are closed by now, but offices are still like, like, like work is still going at full speed pretty much. Um, and this is partly also because at one point we said like, no, economy has to run. And so independent of what researchers say that say like, look, working together in an enclosed office is a great way to transmit the disease. They're like, no, like our idea is that it doesn't. And so we're sticking with it. I mean, yes, but I see that as part of a separate problem as well. So I think there's this problem where people can't see like so so science should change as we get more facts like as the facts there's more information we should change what our our recommended course for example in the pandemic is and i think that's a separate issue where if scientists are shown to change their opinion as new facts come in they're seen as being less good at their job where in, in actual fact the ability to change your opinion as a scientist at when you have more evidence makes you better at your job from a public point of view uncertainty is always a bad thing and is is therefore undermining so i've heard like one of the in in, in covid one of the things is that hand washing is probably not that important like unlike influenza and other things like covid probably doesn't transmit from hands or from surfaces most of it is coming from like mouth to mouth it's like coming from people who are breathing the same air as us um but 
to firstly it doesn't it doesn't hurt anything to wash hands so people washing their hands more well they will protect themselves from flu so that's anyway it's it's not harming anybody if people are washing hands but secondly if you do backtrack and say well that's not actually that important we've found out that will undermine the public opinion of the scientists and also the politicians so that seems like a bit of a mm-hmm. a separate thing that yeah yeah i mean you're right that's that's a, that's a very good point um, so yeah, and I mean the escalation of commitment it plays also into like several other biases and other ideas. Like it's sort of um, a part on top of other of other things that make us cloud our judgment. Like it's not only like resources, it's not also not not only things like trust, but also things like ego that um, sort of shape yeah, the way we do, we like as like in like big decisions how we how we make these decisions. Um, I think there's like this weird thing to value certainty a lot, which like like confidence is seen as competence, which is kind of linked as well, right? Like, so if you made a choice, if you, I, I can see in your notes that you've mentioned the PhD, I'm surprised it didn't come up yet, but like I'm I'm sure like this is definitely a thing. Like you know, you you say you're going to do a PhD, and then one year, and you realize it's, it's not for you, and then you. <laughs> you don't back out because you committed but actually there's still like at least three years left um yeah i i think there's also that idea of i should know confidently what i want to do in my life and if i'm questioning my life i am therefore weaker or stupider or you know yeah. Where maybe you just have more imagination. Like honestly, if you're questioning what you, maybe the people who aren't questioning are just like dullards and they <laughs> just have not thought outside the box. I mean, faking competence with confidence is pretty much the story of my entire high school um, years. So <laughs> um, that that definitely plays a role as well in this. But yeah, so that's the escalation of commitment. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Wow, I hope you brought a lot of plant facts because I did not do well at this. I think Can all I... three of my facts that I have today, spoiler alert, I just have three. Um, they relate to plants somewhat, so yeah. Can I start? I... I... I got to the point like 10 minutes before starting the podcast where I realized I didn't have a lot of plant-based stuff, um, mostly because I spent most of my weekend looking at the Sator Square and tenant-related articles. Um, so I went onto Science Advances and I was immediately struck, and some would say moonstruck, by the header they have over there, which is that they've published two articles in the last like day or two about the role of the moon in having different effects on human bodies. And the first one is that synchronization of human sleep occurs with the moon cycle. So I should actually read the full title. It's called Moonstruck Sleep Synchronization of Human Sleep with the Moon Cycle Under Field Conditions. Um, which I think means growing humans in the field, like you would some wheat plants. So that's the kind of plant link. Sleeping um, in, a, in a field of wheat, like snuggled. <laughs> yeah, and the basic like line of story there is that they used um, basically kind of Fitbit watches. So they looked at the activity on these these health watches to look at how people's sleep works during different lunar cycles. And I think linking this to different um, environments, so whether you were in a kind of rural a community with 
perhaps not any access to electricity, so you weren't getting these external light sources, or if you were in very um, urbanized, you know, lots of light settings. And they were kind of making the link to that and saying that moonlight likely does have an impact on nocturnal activity and that it also might, um, you know, if there's a full moon, it might be inhibiting sleep, so that would impact how you sleep around the moon. I can buy that. That's pretty good. Like, Fedus. Although, like, I have to say, like, with my doubting voice here, that, like, I've read years ago somewhere that people did, like, a meta-analysis on sleep studies and correlated, like, looked if they would see any major patterns in a ton of different sleep studies based on when they would perform the studies because then they would perform them in different parts of, like, the lunar cycle. And from what I remember from that, they said that, they couldn't observe any effect that would correlate with the moon phases because then you would imagine that all the people who study sleep, they would see some bias in one or the other direction um, when the moon is doing something at night. Yeah, so I didn't look into this very much and I didn't look at how many um, people were involved in the study and all of that kind of stuff. But I would say hold your doubting voice just a little bit. Um, (laughs) Because I did mention there was two studies. And the second study is called Women Temporarily Synchronize Their, wait for it, Menstrual Cycles with the Luminance and Gravimetric Cycles of the Moon. Is that so? I... Okay. I had a, I, as I said, I got bogged down on this just before we started the podcast. So I have to go back and have a really good look at this i am highly skeptical because i do not want to believe that my womb ebbs and flows with the moon i mean anyway i'm on hormones right now so that's definitely screwing with my natural rhythms um i also am perhaps very immature but i find it very off-putting that they use the word menses for like menstruation i know that's like a scientific term but it sounds like my menzies, it sounds really like nana-y. Um, no, so the real thing I think is like there's 22 people in the study only, which seems quite low for me. Again, I'm used to working with plants. I'm not a human person at all. So like all my criticisms are from uh, Tegan has problems accepting this science point of view and not from uh, knowing anything I'm talking about point of view. There's 22 subjects and they were divided into two groups. So I think they're tracking their period over 15 years um, on average. But some of them are only in the younger groups. There was like a split where like 15 of them were only tracking it in in the younger ages and then like 17 only in the older ages and only a couple of them like did like the whole like a life cycle of kind of periods. And yeah, um, (laughs) 22 women. I've got to find the important quote here because I think it's... it's So temporarily tracking or aligning means that like during some part of their life they were in line with the moon like they sometimes were in sync and sometimes they weren't yeah pretty much that's the thing like it says although all the over i'm I'm reading from paper now although all the records overlapped in time they displayed menstrual rhythms that differed greatly among individuals that varied over time within individuals for example the cycles of all women were regular at some times and irregular exhibiting phase jumps and period changes at other times but these variations happened during different years in the different individuals 
which is basically what any woman who has a period will know. Like, theoretically, it's supposed to come every month, but sometimes it's surprising you. Um, And then the final kind of, like, summary of that is, in summary, at certain intervals, the rhythm of these individuals' menstrual cycles appeared to oscillate in synchrony with the synodic lunar month. Which, again, if my period is, like, kind of regular but also shifting, yeah, then at some point it will synchronize with the moon it will also synchronize with when i need to like put my brown bin out for collection it will also synchronize with when bob dylan inevitably releases another record or woody allen gets another film that nobody answers for like asks for like <laughs> yes yeah i have but- to imagine like <laughs> just for, for this this like ex- physical experiment where you have like a couple of pendulums at different length and you like let them all go at the same time and then they first swings are sort of in sync and then they all go in their different individual rhythms and then they go back in sync for a while and if you look long enough you find periods where it's utter chaos and uh, periods where it's perfectly in sync and it's just like the nature of if you have things that oscillate or that like move behave like in cyclic patterns but sort of shifted phases and with different sort of wavelengths sometimes they will overlap and sometimes they won't they, they won't and I'm not surprised that they do sometimes overlap with the moon. I mean, it's a 28-day cycle in theory, together with a 28-day cycle of the moon. So, yeah, at one point, with all of the shifts and irregularities, it might just be in line. Yeah, so I'm, again, like, I am not a human biologist. I I really, I need to, like, read this properly and discuss it with somebody who has this expertise. This, the, uh, the authors are really careful to say, like, we're not saying there's any causality. We're just saying that we saw that at some points there was this synchrony. They also mentioned that the Zeitgeber, so what's making this timing happen, could be a combination of not just gravity, but also luminescence of the moon. So, again, like... I don't find any of these completely unbelievable. Like, I mean, I do think the gravity can have impacts on organisms. We know, like, you know, some organisms do respond to magnetic pulls and stuff. I don't know that my uterus does that, but, like, this is not outside of the realms of feasibility that there are gravitational effects. Also, of course, luminescence. Like, of course, light has impact on living organisms. This is how plants grow towards light. Like, not insane ideas, I just do not think my womb is driven by the moon. Like, I just... (laughs) And again, this might be a confirmation bias. So if somebody knows this field and wants to come at me, like, I would love... I mean, again, I've I've read it kind of quickly now. I want to go back and have a look in full. Um, But... Yeah. No. Why? (laughs) No, I mean, I, I, I fully agree with you. It's something... That comes up from time to time, this idea of the impact of, of, of the moon. And also, I don't deny that it, it might have an impact. Um, but uh, yeah, what I find cool about the story, that's what I wanted to say, is like the idea of taking all of these fitness tracker data um, or like any sort of personal health tracking data and doing sort of larger studies. And I mean, this is 22 people, but over a long period of time. But if you imagine now you can do this over a long period of time with a lot of people because people sort of consciously track bodily function this could be very cool and well that's definitely part of the thing like there's a lot of um like my fitbit now has also tracking of menstrual data and there's a lot of like women specific fitness trappers or like health apps where you can put this data in so i think like to me it should be very possible to get a large data set now and look specifically 
I, I mean, I, I guess I'm really skeptical because I've also heard a lot of people talking about, you know, women in the same household, their cycles sync up. And again, like if you're going to bleed for like a one week period in a period of like three to four weeks, at some point there's going to be overlap of a couple of days or two. And that does seem more significant because our human brains love to find these things where we're like, oh my gosh, I'm the same as you or look, here's a pat. Like, but yeah. I just, I think, I think I thought, re- I think maybe I heard something. It might have been on Science Versus that the only evidence of that is like very slim. Like there's, there's not convincing evidence. I, I'm not going to say what I think. I, I anyway, anyway. <laughs> what I understand is that Tegan, you have homework now, and next episode you will talk. A, we will talk a lot about menstruation cycle. No, I mean, like I definitely. <laughs> This is definitely not my field of expertise. So, like, as I've said this like five times now, like, I this is so far of what I out of what I know, and I, I, I'm having this strong gut response to this. Like, like, my first response is just like, no, no, <laughs> and you know, as a scientist, whenever I have that response, I should do the research. I should go and look into it. So, I do need to look into it, but I have to say, like, if anybody knows anything about this, get back to me. And if if you Use the phrase phrase star signs in your response. I'm going to block you. But like otherwise, <laughs> if you know very any- open to input apart from like a very specific thing. Yeah, I don't want to know what my moon rise. No, but like if anybody actually knows the signs behind it, I would love to have a chat about it. But I'm just I'm. S- yeah. I mean, I think it, it's too new. I think in a couple of days there'll be like some. It literally came out today. I think in a couple of days there'll be some commentaries on Twitter, and then I can follow like actual experts who know they're talking about it and maybe i'll come back with a correction next week saying i was wrong i'm sorry um there's a tidal pull in my uterus even now as we speak <laughs> like, yeah i can't i can't wait for that um yeah i i wrote a fact today that's also ties in with something that we talked about earlier in another show about cyborgs uh we had this weird cyborg drone that used detached antenna from a moth to detect uh, molecules in the air and then fly towards them. Um, And now researchers use plants to create another cyborg. And what they did is they created um, a robot arm that had the the important parts of a Venus flytrap attached to them, and they could electronically control them to do like the closing motion. And they could grab delicate objects with them at will. So they had them on a robot arm, they had like the detached parts of it, bending down and picking up a thin piece of wire and also catching um, what looks like in the video that we're linking to, like a falling weight of one gram, as if it would like fall, catch it from the air. But if you look closely, there's like a wire attached to it. And it's like slowly dropping the weight. And then at one point, the thing closes and traps the weight in it. Um, but what they managed to do is like detach Venus flytrap um, leaves and or like the, the catching apparatus and control it electronically so that you can put it into a machine and apparently it's able to react to stimulus and hold on to objects with one like small caveat and that it's that it takes it about, immediately dies no it, yeah, first of all yeah it, it doesn't survive forever but also it takes like 30 minutes to open again so if you have a robot that's very it's very important that it can grab something but then release it very slowly that's the perfect um application for it 
Um, but if you want to have like grab it and let it go, maybe don't use a uh, Venus flytrap because it takes forever to open again. Which is also the entire biological purpose of the Venus flytrap. Fly it wants to stay closed so the fly doesn't leave, right? Like it is yeah. by definition a trap, not a releasey thing. Yeah. It's good for um, punishment of your child with timeout for very small toys. Like... <laughs> You put it in the flytrap, and then he can only play again when he the, the flytrap opens leads. again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be a very good application for it. But other than that, I think it's a it's a very cool technical study that we can use electronic signals to control plant behavior um, for this. Um, I doubt that it will have a lot of technical application. We will soon have like production line robots lined with like Venus flytrap mechanisms to assemble cars. What needs to be grabbed and then not let go for a really long time? Maybe it could give people hugs, like a really big one that just gives like a hug and then you just kind of like... Oh, that would be nice. Like weighted blankets are really in right now. It would be like a a Venus flytrap weighted blanket where you just kind of... Yeah, although I would would really want a Venus flytrap to be genetically modified in a way that it doesn't release the flesh-eating enzymes that it has. Not a plus, but but you know there's that really crazy um, beauty treatment where you go in a chamber and they basically flush you with liquid nitrogen like very quickly to like you know it's like a beauty thing. It shocks your body and stimulates cell growth. And yeah, it's, it, I'm um, sure it does. It yeah, I mean it, it does all of these things and also absolutely does not work. And it's really bad for you to do this. Don't do this. Um, but chemical pills are also a thing, so maybe like a Venus flytrap kind of chemical pill is something that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we thought of it first. That's all we're saying. If this is monetized, it's twenty twenty one. It's the twenty seventh of January. Like, <laughs> I don't know how, how what bars like tagsies. <laughs> anyway, so that's a robot arm that has a Venus flytrap attached to it and it can grab delicate objects. It just doesn't let go, really. No, also, I have another thought. <laughs> you <laughs> go, know how, like, all of- <laughs> so full of thoughts today. They're all bull- <laughs> I- I'm full of them. Um, you know how, like, plant scientists, we think, like, we're quite smug over animal scientists because, like, an animal scientist is, like, curing cancer and we're like, yeah, but you totally murdered mice to do that, right? And we feel like morally superior because we don't murder mice. There's like now roboticists and there's like some of them who are murdering Venus flytraps and some of them who are like ripping the antenna off moths. And those Venus flytrap ones have got to be feeling so good about themselves right now that they're not like <laughs> mutilating moths for their robots. Yeah, there's there's clearly like an ethical hierarchy of, of researchers <laughs> there. Um, I think we should use the term arbitrary ethical hierarchy. <laughs> really, really. No, to me, it's it's an objective truth. Like, I, I picked this profession because I didn't want to murder mice, and I think I'm objectively a better person. Yeah, but Although, I've also seen you, like, take out a vacuum cleaner the second a moth comes near you, so... Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm very much in favor of spraying, like, high-intensity pesticides, like... Um, insecticides wherever i live like dtt everything around me please (laughs) um i have something that's kind of plant related um a little while back i guess probably a month ago now because we're already at the end of january um time released their list of the best inventions of 2020 and i'm not sure if you saw this yarm um it was doing the rounds a bit it's really cool to look through so they have um 
a hundred inventions. They're kind of broken down into different subsections. So accessibility, artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, like from A all the way down to, let's see if there's a Z. Um, there's a special, no, wait, there's a wellness. So data down to W. Um, and it's really, it's just cool. It's good to look through. I would recommend it. The ones I wanted to mention for the podcast are an indoor garden, which is very swanky looking. Like it's super futuristic. It looks like there are basically plants floating in some kind of light pod. Um, I kind of want it. It's also super, super, did I use the word pretentious? Yeah. <laughs> It's garden, but you spell garden with a Y, if that gives you any clue about what it is. And it also costs like 800 pounds for, I'm guessing, a couple of lettuce a year. It doesn't look like it would be overly productive. Plus a monthly fee for membership and seat delivery, it says here. Well, that's only if you actually want to grow things in the garden. Um, <laughs> you can also choose to not have the membership. Um, it's definitely for rich people. But I I do find it very beautiful. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's one of my pet peeves. Like the the great length that we go to to grow cellulose and water indoors. Um, like we spend so much energy on growing a couple of like lettuces with like electric energy that we put in there with like pumps that circulate some water with um, chemical energy that we put in the fertilizers just to have in the end a lettuce that has like no nutritional value. It's like purely fun of eating a lettuce, but there's nothing in there that, that like if you, there's no, no, no calories no, no, no. in there, there's no vitamins in there, there's nothing exciting in there. It's like cellulose and water and you spend like 800 kilowatts of like coal energy in Germany to grow your lettuce indoors. Um, yeah. No, no, the... the <laughs> <laughs> the take home is that you can um your children will be more likely to eat their greens because they have seen them grow and harvest them. So that's the plus. Um but yeah, it's 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 really I mean, I'm using the word pretentious. I want to use the word wanky. I hope that passes the duck test. Um it's it monitors the light, the humidity, the soil saturation. I don't even understand where it's keeping the soil because the way it looks, I just I don't see where there would, is soil here. I would here. think it's hydroponics. It's probably like, I mean, Ikea sold and stopped selling this system pretty much for a couple of years where you had like a water-based hydroponic system. Um, you grow your things on little like mineral um, soil substrate. I don't think it's hydro. I think it, it, it does have, I think it has little buckets of soil. I think you just can't see it very well in the image. Um Anyway, that was very beautiful um, and fun. The other thing I want to mention, which actually might be more interesting from a not completely breaking the environment point of view, um, there's something called circulose, which is that people are trying to recycle the natural fibers out of clothing. So basically get, like, as you know, we have this huge problem with making too many clothes, wearing them once and throwing them out again. And there seems to be a company that is now um, trying to you break down the worn out clothes and basically turn all of the natural fibers into kind of a cellulose pulp that can then be rewoven to make fresh fabric. So it's kind of, yeah, it's circulose, it's making a circle. They also um, apparently use eco-friendly chemicals to do this like breakdown process and it is powered by renewable energy. So from an energy point of view, it should also be friendly. I think one of the problems is that a lot of clothing that we're wearing is anyway synthetic fibers and you can't do a lot with that. Um, but I think that is something 
kind of cool at least and then the final mention i'm gonna do is one called air vodka which is exactly what is being sold on the tin as it turns out now you can bypass the need for plants by simply transforming carbon dioxide into ethyl alcohol um oh also from water um it's a thing <laughs> I don't like so it's got like NASA award winning technology um, it's also like again it's got like carbon negative blah 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 I just it just sounds like the future right I just think that's quite fun yeah yeah it is fun um. anyway I would highly recommend you go and look through this list because it's got such a diverse range that it's it's really sometimes you see things where you're like oh that could actually be helpful for the world and other times you're like that's literally nail polish like why is that the future like there's like such a range but it's just for all different tastes so go check it out yeah yeah it's definitely fun to scroll and have a have a look have a laugh and sometimes be excited about new tech that might hit your home or like the place you live in uh, I have something um, that's also a follow-up on something we talked about before. Uh, I think you talked about it, about um, microbes and tomato, right? <laughs> about sort of the transfer of microbes and tomato seeds and the importance on fitness, I think. Yeah, um, from the, the mother kind of to the young. Yeah, and now they, there's uh, additional research that's um, done in oak, um, so on acorns. They... Um, wanted to see if microbes can actually be transferred from um, uh, if, if the micro if, if, if the microbes that you find in the end on the plant if they came from the parent or not and that's actually something that's fairly hard to do because when you grow my, um, any seed in soil the soil is like super rich in microbes so you will never be able to tell did they come from the soil or did they come from within the seed so um, in this case, the research team used a new novel culturing device where they could grow the oak seedling, seedlings in a microbe-free environment and keep also the leaves separated from the roots because what they also wanted to see if um, the, the when you look at mature oaks, you have different microbes on the leaves than you have on the roots. And they wanted to see, is that something that comes from the environment? You just have different microbes in the soil than you have sort of floating in the air and landing on, on the leaves? Or is that also something that's um, done by the seed, the way the, the plant grows? It's like both of them coming sort of from the mother plant. And what I could find is that um, they have microorganisms in the seed and then they sort of the, the community separates into some that move with the leaves and stay on the leaves and some that stay with the roots. And they could see that because they had this like microbe-free conditions and could track that. Uh, and what they found was essentially that, yeah, there is a um, sort of a cargo of microbes that comes from the mother plant that's already within the seed and that forms part of the microbi uh, microbial community that will then end up on the leaves and on the roots of course like with with if they would be in a um, environment that's not free of microbes you would have additional environmental microbes also attached to it but there's already a considerable amount of microbes on within the seed that then ends up on these two parts of the plant 
um, mm -hmm. further extending sort of what we know and understand on the microbes. And they also go into the idea that um, breeders are now looking into microbes to boost plant fitness and the with like the potential that in the future we could um, have a mix of beneficial microbes that we can spray on seeds or young seedlings um, that will help them to grow well later on. Okay, so I have a quick shout out, which is to the silly paper name of the week. There is more to flowering than those damn genes. The biology behind bloom in roseaceous fruit trees. Um, this came out, I think, like last month. Oh, no, it's coming out next month, apparently. It came out in the future. Um, I then had to look into what damn genes are. And apparently, damn stands for dormancy-associated mads, bucks, genes. And these are genes that act as a like really important regulatory hub of um, response to seasonal temperature. And understandingly, they are involved in dormancy um, response, like breaking dormancy and also telling the plant when to develop a flower and how quickly to do that. So well done, authors, scientists, for coming up with those damn genes. Um, I always like the funny article <laughs> titles. And then the other quick thing is that I saw a um, short obituary to a physicist, um, Akita Arima, who died at the end of last year. And one of the things I really liked about the obit was that it mentioned that um, Akita was not only an important physicist and politician, but was also known for their poetry. So they won a the Haiku Society Prize book um, for poetry, for haiku poems, and, and had this. And at the same time, I was listening recently to a very fun podcast called Undressing Bridgerton, so about this um, fluffy kind of fantasy period bodice ripper series that's been on Netflix that everybody was watching over Christmas. Um, and they mentioned a woman who is a tenured professor studying English literature and Shakespeare who also writes best-selling, like, regency romance like bodice ripper books under a pen name and this just kind of got me into the general theme of thinking how much i love it when people who are like serious academics also have hobbies and have other things they're doing in their life and especially when those hobbies are allowing them to express themselves in a creative way that they're possibly not able to do in their more serious life so you know, big shout out to all of the scientists who are doing other fun and silly and amazing and beautiful and creative things. I I really like that this is coming up more, that the story we're getting, you know, in Obits is not she died and, you know, the most important thing about her is that she slept under her lab bench. I want to see she died and as it turns out, she was a real person who had connections to the world and cared about people and things. Like, that's... yeah. That's so important. Yeah, that that's really cool. That's um, so. Yeah, I have a short video that I just want to recommend to everyone. Um, it's uh, it's a very simple thing. It's how to pick the perfect avocado, um, or as I like to call them, avocados. And uh, I I learned a little bit about it. It's uh, the the main idea. I'm I'm no, I don't want to tell you how to pick the perfect avocado because then you won't click on the video. Avocado. The, the avocado. The point why I want to share this here is because this is a very fresh new YouTube channel from Joe's McKay, um, who just started it. And uh, I, I think it would be very nice to 
um, make it known for a few more people because like she's doing science communication she's talking about why uh, avocados have the color that they have um, what are the parts in it uh, and then also like how it helps you in picking the perfect avocado when you want to make some uh, guacamole uh, with them so yeah just click on the link uh, like it and be nice and help somebody who's starting a science communication thing on YouTube um, that would be cool yeah, that's already the whole fact. Cat fact. I have a fact that's talking about my favorite thing in the world. Of course, it's CRISPR. Um, I'm talking about a crisp parrot. Um, that's a parrot that was addicted to crisps and it was very heavy. And I found this on BBC Science. Um, it was a parrot that was eating so many crisps that it was too heavy to fly. And now it has a new owner. And the owner put it on a special diet. So it um, lost a lot of weight and now is able to fly again and a lot healthier. Um, but the special quality of the parrot is that it can hear a package of crisp being opened from miles away. So the owner also had to stop eating crisps because the parrot would immediately attack him to eat the crisps because I wanted to get fat again. And that's the whole story. But I liked it when I was looking for science facts on BBC Science. There were like two stories on the parrot. One about the parrot that's too heavy and then about the parrot who got lighter from not eating the crisps anymore. Yeah, it's a bit sad when like domestic animals get too overfat like that. That's a bit... But it re it recovered, so it's a nice story. <laughs> it's not fat. Anymore. Okay. And I think that's it from us today at Plants for Pets, Periods and Parrots. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Plants for Pets. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants for Pets. And a handle that I actually myself used wrong. Like I'm saying every single week, I'm saying at Plants for Pets. And then I wrote some other tweets. I was mentioning it and I wrote the wrong handle down. That's how competent I am. You can get in contact to us with us to give us ideas of what we should talk about, do our homework for us, or also tell us when we have made mistakes or done wrong things. We got a really nice correction about our episode last week or a couple of weeks back. I referred to trees as having a gender instead of having a sex, which is an important different one being a social construct, the other being like a biologically defined thing. Um, although even then, like in humans. Mm, uh -huh. Anyway, um, thanks for the correction. I think Yoram has made little notes on the, the show notes of that episode now to fix that. Um, but please, yeah, do feel free to get <laughs> Yoram has not. His face tells me he hasn't, even though he said he would. Um are you writing it down? Write it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Genetics. Coronavirus. Dogs! This is Petri Dish. Science! Science! We're a science podcast exploring complex subjects with clarity and evil humor. Join the scientific revolution. Join Petri Dish, dropping every Monday on anchor.fm slash Petri Dish. Ha!